noise you can hear is uh, the Slow Food Tierra Madre Salón de Gusto parade. We have, there are literally thousands of people marching from all around the world for slow food. This month we are live from Turin, Italy, where thousands of small-scale farmers, shepherds, fishers, chefs, and people committed to more resilient food systems from over a hundred different countries all around the world have come together to celebrate and share food and farming knowledge. It's really like the UN for food systems. This is Slow Food, Salone del Gusto Terra Madre. Welcome to Farmerama. Welcome to Farmerama. Nigel, can you explain to listeners what Slow Food Movement is? So the Slow Food um, Movement was founded by Carlo Petrini uh, back in 1986. And it's essentially the antidote to fast food. He sort of set it up um, as a way of promoting sort of lo- more sort of local traditional foods and a sort of better, healthier, fairer food system. Yes, and I heard Carlo um, speak at the opening ceremony, which was in a, a sort of outrageously lavish uh, theatre in the middle of town. And I initially sort of sort of felt that that was a little bit at odds, really, with a with a movement which is really about indigenous people and farming people's relationship with the land. But I sort of left in the end, actually feeling quite positive about it. There were there were a lot of farmers in the room and a lot of farmers speaking, as well as a lot of politicians. And I guess that you. You sort of need those both two ends of things if you're going to make change. I really liked the, what Carlo was focusing on, stressing in front of these political leaders that we live in a world where the economy just really doesn't represent farmers at all. He spoke very clearly about, as a society, we just simply have the wrong relationship with food. And I, I was struck by sort of comparing... He was talking about hunger on one side and then obesity on the other side and both using examples of how much they cost us in terms of like our emotional well-being as much as economically this whole festival this whole gathering being a sort of focus for for really addressing the fact that our relationship with food and producing and farming is wrong and he speaks brilliantly and it was it was it was really quite inspiring but here we are now we're at the uh, Valentino Park in another part of Turin. Abby, maybe you could explain a little bit about what your impressions are. So for me, this event is incredibly exciting because of the variety, diversity of people that get together in one place. I think that kind of thing happens, you know, with heads of states and quote-unquote important people quite often. But here, it's actually the producers and the people from the land and the chefs and people actually doing things and making things, coming together and sharing their ideas from places like Guinea-Bissau to Poland. Like, everyone's here. It's crazy. This all kind of came to a head when we went to the parade where 7,000 farmers, food artisans, fishers, indigenous people, activists, leaders, citizens from 143 countries paraded through the streets of Turin, sharing culture, dancing, singing. And most importantly, we were joined in voices echoing the shared message of saving biodiversity and feeding the world sustainably. 
My name is Asia. We are from Russia, North Caucasus, and uh, we came uh, come here to the Terra Madre. Uh, we want to save our traditional products, our traditional food. People call me Ab, but my name is Abdurrahman. I'm from Italy, but I born in Morocco. I was born in Morocco. Think about the food. I think about the farmers, the farmers that uh, they work hardly for to give the people uh, good food. So, if I tell you food, I tell. You, I love the farmers. I love uh, every person that work with the green, with the product, that uh, the fishers. Every person that live with the food. Andrea, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I know that we need to to change the words and how are we eating the food. My name is Tiama. Um, Burkina Faso, the diversity of uh, agriculture in uh, uh, Africa uh, is a, a time for find uh, a solution conservative of uh, the natural uh, system. My name is Caroline. I'm from Denmark. What's the reason to be here today? Loving the earth. Yes. More or less, I study. I'm a student. I study economics. Okay. My name is Shohei from Japan. After Terra Madre, we have to change the Japan's style by the throw food. There will be a lot more from Turin later in the show, but we're also going to be sharing some stories from other places we've been in the last few weeks. And last week I was at GODAN, Global Open Data for Agriculture and Nutrition, conference in New York, a meeting of heads of state, uh, data experts from around the world, and completely different to the sort of vibe here. But I'd like to share a story, and it's a product really, from someone I met there. It's a technology to empower the small-scale farmer, and the business model is one really focused on the needs of the farmer, not big business. The machine's open source, and it's really simply designed so farmers can fix it locally by themselves. Hi, I'm Lockie Catron with the company Clever. We're manufacturing the Ogun tractor, and we're based out of Paint Rock Valley, Alabama. The goal of the Ogun tractor is to enable the rebirth of the small family farm, both in the United States, but also all around the world. 80% of the world's farmers are small, and so we have to we have to serve those farmers first in order to feed the world. The Ogun tractor is a small-scale, 19-horsepower tractor that is made using common components so that farmers can fix it in the field, fix it in the shop, and find parts locally. So this tractor is ideal for small farmers that have anywhere under 80 acres. One of our founders is from Cuba, and one is from Alabama. So the one from Alabama grew up farming with mules, so he understands what it's like to not have any sort of mechanization on the farm. And then the other one's from Cuba, Saul Barenthal, and he always wanted to go back and do business in his country and do something that actually benefited the people of his country. So we started designing this tractor at the end of 2014 when the President of the United States and Cuba announced that they would begin to mend the relationship between the two countries. And so we first designed the tractor for Cuba, and they loved our business model, which is an open system manufacturing approach. We're the first U.S. company approved to manufacture in Cuba. 
Well, right now the equipment industry has totally ignored the small farmer, and they don't have any equipment out there for the small farmer, and especially not at an affordable price. And that's largely because of their business model. They lock the farmer in, so they have to go back to them for parts. They have to go back to them for service. So our whole business model is giving freedom back to the farmer, letting them be independent. We will publish the designs for our tractor and for everything that we end up producing. So they can buy them from our manufacturer. They can use implements from other companies, or they can build their own if that's cheaper or if they have a better and new idea for an implement. Farmers are innovative people. Farmers are capable people, and many of them want to fix their own equipment, but they just can't because it's built so complicated so by providing a simple tractor anyone can learn how to fix it many of them already know how to do that but what they can also do with the architecture that we have is go and take it to someone that they know that can do it so they don't have to go back to a dealership from our company we don't even have dealerships but they can take it to a local shop so it's all about building up the local economy as well Farmers in the developed world are extremely excited about this because they are so tired of not being able to fix their own equipment. They just want the freedom to be able to do that, and they realize that no one is serving them. No one is serving that market of farmers, so that's what we want to do. And for the developing world, they're just excited to have any sort of mechanization. You know, if you're using an oxen to plow your field, a tractor looks a whole lot better. Thank you, Lockie. Sound good, Nigel? Yeah, I like the look of it, Joe. I think um, certainly for sort of arable, like small-scale arable and um, horticultural farmers, I think this tractor offers a lot of like opportunities. And I love the fact that it's sort of open source and the fact that you can fix it very cheaply and it's not an expensive bit of kit. It's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So Terra Madre is a sort of confluence, it's a meeting of farmers, it's a meeting of uh, like academics and thinkers. But there's another side to what's going on here this weekend, and that is Salone del Gusto. We're actually sat maybe 100 metres from where this is going on. I think there's around 1,200 exhibitors from all around the world um, bringing their local traditional foods, credible um, produce... Uh, cuisine from all around the world and from over 100 countries and it's incredible to be able to walk around talk to the people who produce that food taste the food and and really get a feel for 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 what they're what they're doing yeah i mean i mean the really interesting thing this this time that they're doing it is that that yes the salone de gusto is spread out throughout the whole city so in the past it was all in one massive hall which is great, um, but I think it's quite nice to, to spread it out amongst the city and, and really bring it alive and bring the sort of the culture of the city um, to life. One of the talks that I've attended was about something called eco-gastronomy, which is a project which comes out of the Slow Food University, which is in Bra, which is it's where we've been staying, actually, and it's about 30 minutes outside of Turin. Essentially, David is talking about how we need to think about... He's, he's, he's talking about a way to think about food in terms of our whole body, so not just what it tastes like, not just its nutritional value, but the smell, how it makes us feel, uh, where it fits into the economy, and the whole web of production, from the farmer who grows the food, to the recipes we remember from our grandmother, to sort of, I don't know, thinking about the value of food in a broader way. And of course, attention on food in this way 
has to be important to the farmer. I'm David Santo, and I am a, what we're calling a professor at large for the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Italy. And my project is to move around to different places, co-organize events with different local partners, um, and events that focus on different issues in different formats that make sense for that place. So it could be anything from a roundtable discussion to a meal to a storytelling event to a, a workshop, depending on what those people I work with think should happen. I think one of the things about food is that the sensory properties of it are always present. They're not invisible and they're not unsmellable and they're not untasteable. We just don't taste them or smell them or, or touch them. We have deactivated our senses in day-to-day -day life to a large extent. And that comes from a whole tradition of, of Western thinking and philosophy and the belief in higher and lower senses and the belief in the mind-body separation, the belief in the, even the division between self and other. So this is one of the reasons that the word eco and eco ecological are very important to me because they remind us to pay attention to the whole system that is participating in what we sense as a reality as the reality of food um, ecology and performance to me are my sort of touchstones and my anchor points for everything that's gastronomy because they remind us that it's the whole thing that produces the effect um, just as the whole ecology produces an effect in a, in a sort of natural environment, the whole ecology of food, including language, meaning, significance, symbolism, including materiality, substance, physicality, including the processes of transformation and harvesting or cooking and growing, and even, even the, what happens in a seed is a performance. And we talk about, in fact, the way seeds perform or materials perform. There's a lot of engineering science that talks about the performance of food. But we don't think about it as a, as a very holistic performance. And that's what's super important about doing anything with food is recognizing we're not the center, we're not the only agents, and a lot of other stuff are performing, a lot of other things are performing while we think it's us that's in control. I, I actually think um, farmers already know all this stuff, right? Farmers are more, farmers and cooks, but even more farmers are more present to the performance of the entire environment in producing what happens with them, right? They, they see and feel and sense climate, soil, microorganisms, uh, vectors of transmission of disease and pollen and all the other things that make food happen. They witness this in their day to day and they know that they're participant in that. They're part of the environment, they're part of the ecology, but they're not the only thing. So if you're asking, if you're, if you're talking to uh, a farmer and, and he or she says, well, this happened today on the farm, they already know that all those stories are taking place and interweaving to cre create the ecology. I always feel like I have nothing to share with someone who has a really close physical contact with food on a day-to-day -day basis because they already know this stuff. I think one of the most important things with this project is not talking to people about their food, but listening to people about their food. Um, the story is a way for the individual to activate his or her own power, understanding, knowledge of themselves. When you tell a story, you learn about yourself much more than you learn about something else. And it's a great way to uh, turn the spotlight back on people who already are experts in their world of food. If you listen to someone, an extraordinary thing happens. I'm slowly learning to get better at not talking. When I listen, much more happens than when I do. If more people do more stuff with food, we're going to get to be uh, a better global community.
Earlier this summer, we went along to an intro to holistic management at Croom Park. Holistic Management International is an organization that educates people in regenerative agriculture for healthy land and thriving communities, originating from the ideas of Alan Savory. It provides a framework that allows farmers to make positive decisions that strengthen their business, the environment, and their home lives. Land manager Rob Havard tends around 100 acres of the National Trust Parkland, moving his 40 cattle across the landscape based on holistic planned grazing techniques. He tells us how holistic management has affected his life. Yeah, my name's Rob Havard um, from Havard & Co Organic Farms. We farm in Worcestershire, um, 50 acres owned farm at home. We rent another 230 acres off the National Trust. I think the main thing for me is that is the setting of, of proper goals that take into account not just the business side, the economic side, but also the environmental side and the social side. So whether that's family or, or whatever, and, and it's allowed me to set a goal I can work towards um, that I can feel good about. You know, I know the decisions I make within that framework are going to be working towards that. So all the time I'm testing to make sure I'm moving towards where I want to be and those on all those different parameters, and it, you know, it's had a big, big impact for me. It's taught me to make decisions to cut time out and to say no and to really compare what the best option is rather than trying to do all options at once. Mm-hmm. A, a couple of things would be, uh, one of them would be selling the sheep last year. Um, so we swapped them out for uh, store cattle. Um, so just doing the marginal reaction tests within the holistic management framework was, wasn't something I was expecting to do. wasn't really something that I'd wanted to do, but I could see it was financially better. It was better for my time, more time with the family. Um, and it was going to move me closer to my goals. It was a more flexible system for us in terms of um, the rented farms that that we have. Um, it integrated better with those as well. So on, on three fronts, it was it was working better for the business. And so we ended up making a decision that worked on you know all three fronts that we wouldn't have made if I hadn't done the test. Mm-hmm. My goal really is to have a multi generational um, farming business that really. It looks after the environment, but it, you know it also heals our bank account as much as any, anything else. And and you know when you're getting up in the winter and you're moving stock twice a day in the in sideways rain, you need motivation. And you know I think about my three kids, and they're all pretty keen to take on the business. And so every day I get up, you know that's my motivation um, to go and move towards that goal of making sure they've got at least an option to go into the business if they want to. Well, they're eight, six, and four, so they're quite young, but they just they just love getting involved and they're they're in you know into everything. And I just want to, yeah, I was very fortunate to have grown up on a farm and have that upbringing, and I just want to make sure that they've got the option to experience that, but also to provide that for their kids as well if they want kids in the future. Long-time Welsh dairy farmer Will Edwards and his son were also there to learn and share ideas with other livestock farmers. One idea they were particularly excited to share was the simple triple suckling method as a smart way to feed and care for new calves. Hi, I'm Will Edwards and um, we're pasture farmers and uh, we farm dairy cattle and we've started a new herd on the home farm this year. Because we were starting from fresh, we didn't have um, any calf feeding equipment. So um, instead of going out and buying it, because of dairy austerity, we thought we'd try and save some money. Um, So I've got a friend that's been multiple suckling his calves on on nurse cows. Always noticed that he ended up with really good heifers and really good stock. Mostly I just put a heifer 
in with three calves and they would either take to each other straight away or not really and it did help that I would tie my my farm dog up just outside the pen that seems to sort of conjure up uh, miraculous mothering abilities in heifers (laughs) they bonded and after a few days and everything was settled um, I would uh, formally tag the calves um, disbud them um, and take them right away from the grazing platform so that uh, neither the calves or the cows were competing with um, my growing um, milking herd for, for resources because grass is very short in the spring um, until you get to magic day when you're suddenly, instead of looking for grass, it's just everywhere. <laughs> One of the features that we found was because we were taking pressure off um, the milking platform, um, it meant that we could make some savings in terms of not feeding concentrate uh, in compa- compared to some other similar farms. We did seem to always have a surplus, um, well, I wouldn't say a surplus, but a, a plenty of grass in front of us then, um, and we were able to sort of cut out the concentrate a lot earlier, so just feed a, a minimal amount. Um, so it's the first year I've done it, and I'm really, really pleased because of the, 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 the downturn in the, the payout this year, um, you know, whereas we budgeted on having a herdsman, um, I decided to do it myself, um, but we've still got the other herd to manage as well. So I've got to try and keep things very simple. Um, and at the same time, um, my neighbour who works on a chicken farm in the morning, he was looking for some work in the afternoon. So he was be able to come and help me in the afternoon. Uh, but on a conventional system the calves would be screaming with hunger by then. Um, But if I can suckle the calves on cows, then, um, you know, everybody's happy. And uh, there was one day when we actually forgot about the calves. Nobody went to see them or feed them or anything. And nothing happened because they just carried on suckling their their foster mothers. Uh, And the cows didn't manage, uh, didn't, didn't mind either. Because um, basically feeding calves means just taking a small bag of meal over um, and feeding it out in some portable troughs for the cows so that they come to you. uh, And it just means that when you do want to handle them, they're used to following a bit of a rattle of a cake bucket. And that's the only reason they could survive without concentrate. Um, But it's just nice to have that sort of close contact with them so that when you have got to handle them, um, everybody's a bit calmer. The 21st to the 23rd November, there'll be another introduction to holistic management with a specific focus on financial and grazing planning in Worcestershire again. We'll post a link to it on our Facebook for anyone who's interested. Part of the slow food movement is slow fish, and a key player in this dialogue is Paul Molyneux, longtime fisherman turned journalist. He shared how he's helping to empower fishing communities by giving the young people the tools to share the stories of their families and communities. This idea lit up the eyes of fishers from all nations. I was a commercial fisherman for 25 years, and I would read what was in the newspapers that people wrote about us. And I said, man, i gotta, you know, I got to tell my story. I was at um, Slow Fish yesterday, and we were talking about uh, what was the most important takeaway from the day's discussions. And one of the, thing, one of the um, things that came up repeatedly was storytelling, connecting, that we get our story out there to people. I was fortunate enough to travel around the world looking at fisheries, and I, remember, I was on the beach in um, uh, India, 
And the people went down there and they bought fish from the fishermen. Well, they didn't need a certification because they knew the story of their food. They knew the man. And I saw this in Thorpstrand, Denmark. The boats would come ashore and the people would come with their little plastic bags down to the side of the boat, hand up money, get bags of fish. And uh, they knew the guy. They knew the story of their fish. What certification is, is kind of a corporate tool to... For, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's a globalization tool in a way. But sometimes um, fish do have to be exported globally. They've been exported globally for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. Dried fish has gone all over the world from places where there's lots to places where there's a little. So what the storytelling is a more personal, a personal certification, I would say. The, the thing about that label and that those monitoring systems and all that stuff that costs money is it all has to be paid for ultimately with fish more fish going into whose pockets not the fish you know fishermen's mm-hmm. right <laughs> so mm-hmm. the main center for coastal fisheries we have a program called the Eastern Maine Skippers program and it's an education program for the children of fishermen kids who are sometimes reluctant to engage in the academic um, aspects of life because their lives already have meaning on the water. They, go, they would rather go fishing and they make sometimes a lot of money at it. What we're doing is reaching out to them and saying, look, as fishermen in the 21st century, you're going to have to be conversant with a lot, a lot of skills in, to, in order to deal with the management, in order to deal with comp- competitive industries that also want to invade your, you know, that want to take your ocean. We get them together at a cohort day. I showed the, the students photographs of, of fishing, which automatically gets their attention. And I asked them to just say one thing that they saw in the photo. Each time, the, the, what they noticed got deeper and deeper. And they had all of a sudden this group of words. Then we talked about what was going on. And then I did for them a quick... Um, uh, workshop on how to mind map, how to organize or information, and then I asked them to write a um, caption for the photo, which they all wrote. And their teachers were astounded that they, these kids had actually written something, that I'd actually tricked them into writing something. They loved it because they were, they were talking about something that was important to them. So now we're amping that up, and we're bringing in radio journalists such as yourselves, um, videographers, uh, TV journalists, reporters, to teach media skills to these kids so that these kids can tell their story. And so basically we're equipping these kids to tell their story so that it doesn't get spun or reinterpreted by an NGO that maybe has another agenda or um, somebody who wants their, their, their sea bot, you know, their fishing areas for some other, other project. And, and can spin their story. They're going to be equipped to tell their own story and really reach people. Thank you, everybody, for joining us in Turin. This is a first for us. We've essentially recorded this episode as live on the day. Uh, we're going to close with a quote from Carlo Petrini, which I think sums up everything that's been going on here. And we'll see you next month. They are giants. But we are millions.